This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to our first podcast. This is Vocal Process. I'm Jeremy Fisher. And I'm Gillian Kays. You're not very sure about that, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Gillian Kays, I will have you know. Um, so and there's a good reason why that the overall title of this podcast is This is a Voice. This is a Voice. Because back in 2015, 15, I think it was, yeah, yeah, the Wellcome Foundation approached us and asked us to write a book on the voice that was going to be linked with their exhibition. Okay, let's be let's be clear on this. What they actually asked us to write was the classical chapter on in the book, which was an interesting um, dichotomy really for us because we are known not for classical singing, but for musical theatre and contemporary singing. So I went... We did both train as classical musicians. We did though, both train as classical that's musicians. That's what was around when we were training, and back I, in ye oldie days. And I still um, coach opera singers myself. Um, but it was interesting that I went down to the meeting and heard what the book was going to be about and basically pitched on the spot for the entire book because what they wanted to cover was classical singing, contemporary singing, which we insisted on, uh, spoken voice, mimicry, ventriloquism and beatboxing. And I just went, I'd love to write about all of those. And the idea was that we were going to write uh, exercises. Uh, it, it was started as 60 exercises, and then it went to 99 exercises. And in the end, we wrote about 150 of them. And they, they um, then discovered the book was too long, so they had to uh, cut a whole load out. And I cannot tell you how annoyed I was with my husband. <laughs> Jeremy, by the way, is my husband. Yeah. Uh, not only are we a working team, but we're also a husband and wife team, a life team. I can't tell you how annoyed I was when he came home and said, oh, we're doing the whole lot. And he read me the list. And I went, but we don't know anything about beatboxing. I don't know anything about beatboxing. What are you thinking of? Well, no, it's fine. It'll be fine. Don't worry. I'll do the beatboxing, ventriloquism and mimicry chapters. And, it and then we'll out, work on the others together. And it turned out, the beatboxing turned out to be one of the most interesting chapters, isn't it? Because it's oh, right it's so on the great. edge of uh, what people can do with their voices. And there's links with breath work. And there's links with um, understanding of phonation, you know, how we voice sounds. And oh. also... So with phonetics and linguistics, consonant, my consonant goodness. Use. I mean, the, what's so fascinating about beatboxing is it's consonant extreme, basically. And um, it was fascinating finding a link between all of those different voice uses because as far as we know, they'd never been put together in one book. Mm. And the link that we came up with, um, sort of by trial and error really, was consonant use because uh, different things require different consonant use. Mm. And the beatboxing was so extreme, it's right out there. And also the idea that you have four different uh, air supplies, which again, you don't normally do in pretty much anything else. So that was fascinating. If you need to know more, read the book. Mm. This mm. is a voice published by Profile Books. So that's how the book came to uh, came into being. And it's why we use this as our generic title, because what could be better than this is a voice which encompasses... Everything vocal. Yeah. Everything voice. Yes. Okay. So what we were planning to talk about today was how we have managed with the whole lockdown situation. Because 
We realise it's pretty much three months in the UK. Just over. That we Brits have been in lockdowns in in various versions. There's a little bit of easing in England and in Wales now, Mm. where we are. And it's been a challenging time. We connect with a lot of people in the voice community, a lot of singing teachers and vocal coaches and uh, musical theatre MDs. And it's been a really, really tough time for people, all you choral trainers as well. Mm. And it's been fascinating to see how people deal with that. I think um, our, our personal situation was that we were due to go to Finland, Sweden, Australia and America um, in the three months between March and the very end of May, June. Yeah. And all of that went uh, completely out the window. Um, we'd already spent, I think, nearly £12,000 on booking flights and hotels mm-hmm. and car mm-hmm. hire and all sorts of things like that. So that also went. And we sat there for about two weeks going, well, we're not going to actually do anything because we don't know what to do. Um, but because we were due to go to Australia and do uh, our singing teachers retreat over there, it was actually Lisa Perks. Hi, Lisa. Uh, who encouraged us with the idea of putting it online. Now, we've been doing online training for at least 10 years. Well, if, if you think back to longer. the first webinars... Well, the first the first um, voice box video that I made mm. for online downloading was 2005. And I think I gave my first Skype lesson round about 2008... So we've been doing it a long time, but mm. we haven't actually put this course online or anything like it, really. And not for such a large group, because nope. we tend to work with, with either one-to-ones in the online delivery or with a group of about six people. Yeah. So suddenly having 25 people in the room was amazing. And we still are very thankful to our Aussie colleagues mm. who'd been expecting us to go to Melbourne. And who'd in fact asked us to do not only one uh, three-day intensive on singing teacher training, but had requested an advanced because this was Australia, the return. Mm. Uh, and they pretty much begged us to put the courses online. And so we did. So we looked at it and we went, well, we've got between 18 and 21 hours uh, of face-to-face content, stuff, yeah. mm-hmm. um, a lot of intense content. What can we do? Mm. How much of it can be transferred? And what's the format? And actually, um, we ended up doing, because that was the other thing, is that we normally we do 11-hour days, and there is no way we were going to do 11-hour days on Zoom. I should explain that the 11-hour days are what happen if you come to our place and do a vocal retreat, because, of course, you get fed as well. Yeah. There's kind of chill-out time and all the rest of it, and they are very long days. They're very intense. And we weren't going to do that online, so we ended up doing... Offering a course that was two hours a day, five days a week for two weeks, which is 20 hours in total. And uh, we also decided that we were going to do it at a time that worked for us as well as worked for as many people as possible. So rather than doing our standard ones, which is sort of afternoons and and early evening, we went, what would happen if we actually started the course at 10 a.m. and we finished at midday? And we looked around the world and went, who's that going to work for? And I have to apologise to the West Coast of America because, sorry, guys, it doesn't work for you. What um, time is it over I think there? It was, I think it's 4am there. Oh, that's not so good. It's not so good. I know Americans um, are early risers. I, th- I think in New mm. York it was 5am and that was a possibility. Mm. But for Australia, it was 7pm for two hours. And for New Zealand, it was 9pm for two hours. 
And then we looked around at all the other places that we have clients and we went, okay, works in Dubai, works in Germany, works in Denmark, works mm -hmm. in Sweden, works in Russia, uh, works in Malaysia. And, and we started looking at all the times and going, actually, this is probably the best time. Yeah, absolutely. So, and uh, the, the interesting thing is that Jeremy's said it's uh, two hours a day. Yeah. So what you're looking at is the first week essentially really cutting your coat according to the cloth in terms of course content yes and the first time we delivered the course we thought oh my lord we have actually ditched about half of the course content how is it going to work don't you can't say ditched well, we didn't ditch uh, it we refined it refined it, it. absolutely we refined <laughs> it we didn't jettison it or anything like that do you know what's so interesting the thing we discovered is less is more I think it was so fascinating because because we're moving now to a, a completely different format. It's a different way of presenting. And it's a different way of learning too for yes. the learners. Yes. So we, we started, we went on Zoom because we've been using Zoom for years, but we hadn't ever used the breakout rooms. And we started using the breakout rooms on the first course. And mm. that was amazing because it was so lovely for people to be able to talk with each other we had maybe five or six people per breakout room and we had um, a moderator there yeah. just to make sure that nobody went off All on the one. discussion was led and curated. Yeah. Um, and people loved it. And so we would do something, we'd teach something, we would discuss something, and then they'd go into the breakout rooms, try it out, practice mm -hmm. it. It was really fascinating how well that worked. And then the other thing is that we had the chat box live the entire time mm. so that people could ask questions in real time um, while we were doing something or explaining something or discussing something, and we could answer immediately. And that hu was hugely popular, is hugely popular. Yeah, and I do feel that as a collaborative teaching team, we are at an advantage in this kind of delivery for two reasons. Uh, first of all, we're in the room together. Mm. So there is um, an interpersonal dynamic going on there mm. that enables people to feel that the, that sense of reality instead of that distancing that we have when we work with Zoom, which is something that, you know, psychologists and trainers, as well as those receiving the training, have been talking about. They're talking about being Zoomed out. And you'll get from this that we interrupt each other and pick up each other's sentences and stuff like that. And so we never argue. Never, ever argue. Not once. <laughs> um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is that if you have somebody else in there fielding the comments uh, and, and checking them, maybe while the other person is, is talking and delivering visuals or whatever mm. mode you're using for your training, it means then the other person can pick up on that and say, oh, Leslie said this. This is a really interesting point. Uh, let's pick that up. And I th it just made the learning a much richer experience. Mm. And um, by the way, anybody who wants to do this, I do recommend having two screens because it is so good to have everything that you want set up on a separate screen so that you can completely focus on who is on screen. And you mean if talking. you're delivering? If, I'm, if you're delivering, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I think the other thing, because this came out from the feedback from the first run of the course, is that if you're attending a Zoom meeting, you need to think ahead as to how is going to be the best way for you to make notes. Mm. Because if it's not all being recorded and then uploaded for a time period for you to view... Which we don't. Which we don't do. And I know some people do, and that's fine. Uh, the, there's a reason why we don't do it, and I'll tell you in a minute, actually. But 
you need some way of being able to reliably note things down as you go along. So mm. have a think about that before you attend a Zoom meeting. Otherwise, you're going to go out, you know, with a kind of the electric shock hair thing. It's a load of information coming at you and uh, you won't know what you really learned. I'm just going to pick up on why we don't upload the recording and kind of make it available to other people post hoc. Well, we don't do that because in order for singing teachers to share their practice, they have to be prepared to be vulnerable. Mm. And you don't want that shared with all and sundry. Yeah. That kind of thing isn't on. Sometimes the way we give each other feedback, you know, in, in the modern world is totally not appropriate. Yes, I know what I wanted to say about this particular experience. And I think we will do it again which is that for the duration of each week of training and a little bit before and for a whole fortnight afterwards, we run a Facebook group. Yes. And that Facebook group is specifically for the people attending the training. The um, discussion moderators are also there moderating comments, fielding questions. And it gives people a chance to upload questions, to maybe record a sound file of, hey, I tried this out. Uh, we've had some amazing yeah. stuff on the on the mm. Facebook group. We've had people uploading commercial recordings, like uh, you know, you go to a YouTube channel and go, "Oh, what's this person doing? Are they doing what what we discussed in the in the class today?" Mm. Um, they've had uh, they've done recordings of themselves trying sounds out that they have never made before, mm -hmm. and everybody is chipping in, and we engender a positive situation. Mm. So we are constantly getting people doing positive. Um, uplifting and um, basically people don't do negative feedback in, well, our, in our groups. No, they, they don't seem to. It's uh, feedback that is of use. And mm. I, I honestly think that the reason why we don't get negativity is the way that we lead the course. Mm. That's been really fascinating. And um, this is this new thing that we're really toying with at the moment, which is peer-to-peer um, -peer learning. And we're doing structured peer learning, which is a new venture for us, and it is proving to be really useful. Mm, mm. I think, you know, really, in, in a way, the, the, the thing that you can take home from this with regard to being in lockdown and the way that our lives have changed so much is that because we turned around and put something together in order to deal with the situation, we... oh. Uh, we now have a different way of working. It's changed the way we work, not simply because we're delivering online, but it's changed the way we deliver training. Is, and that's been fascinating. Is it bad to say, I love lockdown? No, it's not. Because We I know love, you're an introvert, I Jeremy. love lockdown. I'm an extrovert introvert, and I love having all of this time at home. Mm. Um, and I love not having to talk to people and I love not having to be out there. Mm. I do go out and I, I enjoy it. But um, my idea of heaven is having a book mm. to read and sit in the garden. And we've actually had a lot more time to do that. And it's been really fascinating doing this course because we, as a couple, are so used to teaching 8, 9, 10, 11 hours a day, packing the content in, mm. packing the value in. And what we've discovered on, particularly on this course, is that People, first of all, can't take that amount of information um, online mm. because you have a whole load of new things that you're having to deal with, including trying to pick up subtle cues that are actually 
they're out of sync with what you're hearing. This is one of the things that there's been just been a research paper published um, on out of sync Zoom and why it's so exhausting, mm. which is fascinating. So we can't do the the number of hours that we normally do. And it actually it's worked really well for us because normally what happens is we do 21 hours over two and a half days mm. and then we do nothing for three days because we can't. Mm. And now we're going, that was that two hours. Here's another hour of follow up that we're doing. And um, what should we do this afternoon? So it's been a massive rethink and a growth process. And we'd love to know from those of you listening what your own growth process has been during this time. Yes. Let us know. Let us know. Um, we have, oh yeah, we know. Yes. We have a, a thing that we're going to be doing, which is we have to play this. And so on. That's a little biscuit tin that we've got, which in fact is your father's biscuit it tin, isn't it? It was my dad's biscuit tin uh, just the six or seven months before he left us. And uh, he did love his Jacob's crackers and there they were in um Jacob's, in if you're listening, tin. we'll have sponsorship for yes, that. Please. Thank you. So uh, what goes in this tin are questions that come out of the in-person courses we run. And we thought it would be fun to start answering some of them we've, as part of each podcast yeah we've been collecting um first of all when people come on the, on the courses and they're face to face with us at our place uh we have that tin on the table and people can drop questions in and we mm. answer them at the end of each day but we've also been collecting questions online we've been doing it the on comments. the courses mm. uh we've had um chat boxes we've been doing all sorts of things so we have the tin here and um, it has a, quite a lot of questions in it. And we thought it would be great for us to do um, AMA, Ask Me Anything. I'm going to have a hydration moment. So I'm going to pick out the first one, which says, teaching the opposite gender and demonstration. What do we think about teaching the opposite gender? Should we, shouldn't we? How do we manage it? What's going on? Julian. Okay. I remember very clearly when I first started working with the adult male voice and not quite knowing what I was doing uh, and probably teaching them to negotiate their range in a similar way to women. So that's one of the first things you need to be aware of if you're an adult female and you're working with a cis adult cis male, then he will have his vocal gear changes in a different proportion of his range to you, the female. And to cut to the chase, if you think about chest register or chest mechanism, generally speaking, an adult male can take his, his voice through a much larger part of his pitch range in chest voice than most females. I would say two octaves without blinking. Mm, I, I was thinking two octaves. Mm. And that is very different for female voice. And you've got to remember also that the vast majority of male voice writing is designed to be sung in chest voice. And there are a couple of exception styles. Uh, the barbershop tenor sings mostly in falsetto mm. and the R&B guy sings mostly in falsetto, although he will pop in and out. Mm. Now, with Jeremy uh, mentioning the F word here, that's quite interesting. As a female, I mean, obviously, hopefully you will have listened to lots of male singers but you may not be aware that what is often termed as a head voice in the upper part of a, a man's range is not the same as what a female uses in her head voice generally. 
So be careful how you demonstrate, because you may find, particularly with the less experienced singers, that the guy will imitate uh, in falsetto because that's what he's hearing in your voice. Sometimes they'll imitate at your pitch and sometimes they'll try and imitate an octave lower but still in falsetto. I mean, there are two things that I tend to do now when I'm working with a male voice in terms of modelling. If I want to model how he should sound in his upper range so that he's not, for instance, pushing too hard with his chest voice, I will do it in a light chest voice in my range. And I will demonstrate doing something heavy and overworked and then kind of backing off and doing something lighter. What I won't do is use my female head voice. And he is much more likely to pick up then what it is he needs to do. You mentioned the H word, which is head voice, and there's so much confusion about head voice. Let's not go there. That should be a whole podcast on its own. If you want us to do a podcast on head voice, and heaven help you if you do, please do let us know. Yeah, head and chest voice. And the other thing that I do is I adjust my resonance so that if I feel that the way I'm modelling sounds too lightweight. I mean, you can hear that I haven't got a heavy, dark voice, even in my speaking voice. So I might model something a bit more like this to make it sound a bit more manly. And that will probably also, because auditorily, he's going to relate to that. And then he will be able to find it in his own voice. Essentially, we're talking about people um, tapping into the timbre rather than the pitch. Mm. So as a bass, I work with people who are almost all higher than me. Um, So I will sometimes do it at my pitch and I'll let them know that I'm going to do it at a different pitch. Um, And then if they want to imitate me at that pitch, that's fine. I will just say to them now, go a little higher, go a little higher, stop. Um, Tell us your best advice as a cis male working with a cis female. What funnily, do you do? Yeah, funnily enough, I do not sing in falsetto. I know that there are a lot of men who have a very good falsetto um, and are quite happy and comfortable up in that range, but I tend not to, partly because, again, we're still talking um, timbre. So even uh, a girl who is listening to you singing in her own range will still hear your timbre and will try and copy it Mm. so um i tend to sing it an octave lower but i sing it lighter i will do the opposite now i'll do the same you you do it darker when you're singing for men and i will do it lighter when i'm singing for women Mm. because again you are people are hearing feeling trying out the timbre in their own minds Well, because people people are our natural mimics that's one of the ways we learn yeah So lighter, brighter, thinner. Lighter, brighter, thinner. And which is how I always wanted to be. I've got I've got to share with you something, which is that sometimes a a newish client will come to me, maybe he's had a few lessons and and I listen to how they use their voice. Say for example that it's a, a female singer. And I'm pretty sure when I'm listening to her that she's worked with a male teacher who has simply demonstrated at her all the time. And I am nearly always right. And it's interesting because they will be using the resonating shapes that he's using, but mm-hmm. using it in their own voice. Yeah, so, so you hear a shape that isn't, oh, we're onto authenticity. You hear a shape that isn't authentic. Well, not only that, I sometimes hear a voice being used in a way that doesn't work for that individual voice in terms of weight 
because uh, a male voice tends to have more weight than a female voice. Um, cool. There's another podcast I was gonna coming say, up right there. We are going to have to do that. Was one question? That was one question. That's that's unfortunately that's what happens. Let's do two more. Okay, let's do the next one. But I'm loving this. All these ideas we're getting just from talking. Yeah, that's what we do. Um, accompanying skills. How important are they for a singing teacher? Is applying for further education vocal coaching positions without impeccable piano skills possible? Really interesting question. Yeah, because so two things sorry, in there. It's all um, right. I've just knocked your microphone. Mm-hmm. Really interesting question because. Um, we are sort of talking the difference between the singing teacher and the vocal coach, and I know that we're going to cover that in a lot more detail in another podcast. We're promising you all these podcasts. We've got the whole lot laid out. Yeah. Uh, There was a really interesting discussion about this in our Facebook group. It's Mm. it's quite a few years ago now where somebody said, "Do do I need keyboard skills in order to be a good singing teacher? And there was quite a division of thought on that. Because some people felt that you had to be able to read music and understand what you were looking at in terms of the score and accompany your students in order to do a good job. And other people said, no, I always work with backing tracks. Um, Some people said, actually, I really don't play piano very well. Um, Others said, I, you know, have basic piano skills so I can... Uh, cue my students in for exercises but I don't accompany the songs and I I think that's a really interesting discussion. Um, I have to say I wrote a book on this um, with Anne Leatherland called How to Accompany Your Students Even Even If You're Terrible at the Piano and there are certain conventions that you can use. I mean essentially if you learn four chords you can play about 500 different pop songs. and also, the backing tracks are just so good at the moment, and there are so many of them, that as long as you know how to queue up something, uh, I would probably go with that. I think the, the real problem is how well you can split your focus. And that depends on how, how comfortable you are with your piano skills. I am very comfortable playing anything at all, and I am able to split my focus. But then I have worked for 30 seven years as a professional pianist so I ought to be able to do that Uh, I think if you are not very comfortable with your piano skills and you end up focusing too much on what it is that you're playing first of all you're probably doing something that's too complicated so simplify and secondly that's not your job your job is to focus Mm. on the singer Mm. your job is actual vocal technique and I think that in a way that question is two questions which is do I need piano skills to teach singing answer no and do I need piano skills to go to um, something like a drama college and teach singing there answer almost certainly Mm. because they aren't really looking for singing teachers they are looking for vocal coaches who teach singing and that's a different thing vocal coaches need to play I am going to go there. I'm eyeing Jeremy up uh, <laughs> simply get, because... I'm getting the eye from Julianne. The evil eye. <laughs> First of all, uh, he's absolutely right. That is uh, that is accepted practice that they will want you to be able to play piano uh, if you're teaching singing, particularly in musical theatre colleges mm. or in further education. Mm. I think one of the reasons for that is they simply don't have the budget to pay for a rep coach now if you go to a music conservatoire that is very different yes my singing teacher when i was learning singing um 
back in the mm, 1970s where I was working with a very good singing teacher. She could play enough to, she didn't really accompany exercises, she taught you the pattern and then she gave you one note or maybe it was a chord. She did not do songs, she did not play songs. Mm. You brought your accompanist into the lesson and she also ran um, masterclasses, weekly masterclasses, where you could take your rep. She was a good singing teacher. Mm. That's the conservatoire tradition. Mm. Most further education colleges d simply don't have that budget and they don't have the rep coaches. They don't have the pianists in there. There's also a thing about what repertoire you're teaching. I mean, we will go into this a lot mm. more um, in a separate podcast, but there is... Um, it, if the repertoire you're teaching is musically complex, so if you've got something like a Richard Strauss Leet, which is complicated to play and actually complicated harmonically as well, mm. you're going to need some level of skill to work that out, even to train somebody to sing it. Mm. If you're doing a Lady Gaga song, uh, apologies to Lady Gaga, but not musically that complicated, um, you can busk your way through that or you can hit one chord every, every bar mm. or you can get a backing track. But you'd better know the style. Yes, much because more important. if you don't know the style, I mean, if we're going to use the analogy of um, Richard Strauss, mm. if you're used to teaching Richard Strauss and suddenly you have to teach Lady Gaga, you might really not do that well. Mm. I think what I'd like to say going back to the first part of the question is, for me, it doesn't matter whether you can play piano or not. As it happens, I can. And I say that in the presence of my husband. <laughs> I can. Um, it matters how good a musician you are. Yeah. Now, you can be a musician without actually being able to read music. Totally. But if you don't understand melody, if you can't track melodies and you can't track pitch, if you can't track and process uh, rhythmic patterns, and if you can't understand the, the environment, the harmony, and all of the stuff that's going on in the, the backing of the... Uh, the music track, then my opinion, don't teach singing. Yeah, I'll be a little blunter, because um, I sometimes am. If you don't understand music and you're teaching singing, you aren't teaching singing, you're teaching noise making. Mm. It's a very different mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, that's, um, that's our position, folks. That's our position. So that's the end of that one. Right, last question. Last question. Do you ask your client to sing the whole song first or work on fragments of it from the beginning? This is very interesting because we actually talk about this on mm. the course, mm. on the mm. um, uh, singing teachers, online, online, singing, online teacher. singing teacher yeah. training. Um, this is a very interesting one. And we, because we ask people to submit videos uh, of, them, of them teaching, we see every range of this we see what you do we people see. we see you and i think it's really interesting um i have a take on this uh you've got to remember that i come from a musician vocal coach background even though i now do singing technique as well and my take is let's sing the song i need to know where you are today if you don't sing anything and you even interestingly if you don't sing anything you don't even know what the song is going to be and you go into warm-ups then you're really going blind my ideal would be to get somebody to sing at least a verse or a chorus just to get them into the mood to get them into the room 
and to find out where they are and what they're doing that day rather than trying to teach from memory. Yeah. Do you know, I mean, we don't know yet what kind of an audience we're getting for this podcast. But uh, what I will say to you, uh, those of you who are singers and who are uh, looking for good vocal coaches and teachers, if you don't get to sing your song in the lesson or you're consistently being stopped after a few bars and you never get through your song, um, I don't think your teacher's really serving you. We're not, you're not being served, no. I will say from my perspective that it kind of depends if the client has already learned the song and it's something they want to work on. I will generally hear them sing the whole song through to hear where they are with it. Sometimes a client comes in and says, actually, I'm having a problem with this part. And I might listen to that part and then I might go back because yeah. often where there's a problem, it's something that happened eight bars earlier. It's not necessarily where the problem is. Yeah. It's eight bars before I agree. It's something that you set up. Yeah. I think there is nothing more frustrating for a singer than to be stopped after one bar over and over again. Yeah. Yes, it's, if you like, it's not contextual. Mm. Um, and I think it's really fascinating. I know people who will do three bars for half an hour because they haven't got quite the right sound. And I'm going, that's not contextual. This is You've got this sort of image or audit, auditory image of a sound that you must be making. And it's it's in a context. You've mm. coming you're coming out of something, you're going into something else. You need to at least sing the entire phrase, if not the three phrases around it, mm. to find out energetically what you're supposed to be doing at that point. So no matter what style you're in. So singing teachers, I know you want to nitpick. I love to nitpick. But do bear in mind what the experience is like for your client, for your student, and why they're there. They are there to sing songs, you know. They want to learn to sing music. Yes. That's the point of technique, which is getting that vocalist up and running so that they can sing music. That's another podcast. What is the point of technique? Yeah, so <laughs> stop it. <laughs> so if there are things you want to nitpick, just choose one thing to work on which I'm sure Jeremy will want to expand on in a moment. Choose one thing to work on and just note the others down. You know, a great way to motivate your client to come for further lessons is to tell them at the end what they've just achieved, what they've done, and then let them know what further work you can do with them on that song. I'm good with that. Yeah. And uh, we, we go into that a lot more on the Singing Teacher yeah. online training. So uh, I think we've answered enough questions. Goodness me, that was a lot of mileage out of three pieces of paper. I'm really thrilled, I have to say. Um, I just want to take this moment to uh, thank uh, our sponsor. And our sponsor today, our sponsor today is um, Canny Publishing, mm. which is spelt C-A-N-U. So it looks like can you, but pronounced canny because it's a Welsh word. Mm. And it's a Welshman word meaning to utter, to say, to speak, to sing, to um, proselytise, to train. It has all sorts of meanings. It's perfect for this as a voice, isn't yeah. it? And um, the sponsor, Canny Publishing, is uh, an arm of Vocal Process. It's the publishing mm. arm. And we now have three books um, published by Canny Publishing, and they are all Amazon number one bestsellers. Now, 
I want you to remind us when the next run of the online singing teacher training is, please, Jeremy. July the 3rd, 2020. Yeah. And where can they find it? Is, does this come in the credits? It w- it can do, yes. It will come in the show notes. Okay, right. Uh, www.vocal.store. Hang on, rewind. www.store.vocalprocess.co.uk. Yeah, and just Google online singing teacher training vocal process. They'll probably, yeah. will they find it? Possibly. Okay. You might find all sorts of things. We better check that out, people. <laughs> okay, well. Good. That, that was, was a blast. That was a blast. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr Gillian Kayes and Jeremy Fisher.